Well, it's always a thankless job to follow a, a powerful grace story with a devotional. But uh, I want to do two things in uh, our devotional time. Uh, one is interact with the theme verse of Refuge 686 from Psalm 68. And then uh, secondly, uh, uh, connect some of those details with the Myers grace story. First, Psalm 68. I'll start reading in verse five. This is a description of who God is. He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing. That underlined section is the theme verse of Refuge 686. God sets the lonely in families. But I read a little bit before and a little bit afterwards because so often when we read a a passage like this, Our temptation is to think, God, I am so thankful that you extend grace and compassion for people like that. And if we paired that with Jesus' first ever sermon, where he is quoting in Luke chapter 4, he's quoting Isaiah 61, Jesus mentions through Isaiah the poor, prisoners, the blind, the oppressed in this next slide. Some of you don't need any help relating to these terms in your lives you know very acutely the kind of impact these terms have when they're mentioned or when they're read because you do feel oppressed. You are struggling financially. You have lost a spouse or a loved one. But these terms are far more universal than life circumstances would suggest. They they impact every single one of us because they describe, first of all, who God is and how he relates to his people. And in Jesus quoting Isaiah 61, the, the, his statements get at the heart of why he came in the first place to seek and to save the lost. Let me back up a second and give you a little bit of a sense of why I'm saying these statements have universal relevance to us. The reality of the human condition starts with this. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin infects every last one of us. Sin impacts every part of our being. It is, has caused this transformation from a, a perfect relationship between creature and creator, which was intended to be enjoyed in harmony, in, in, in utter dependence, to bring joy and body and soul satisfying communion with our God. But it has degenerated into animosity and rebellion. Sin pushes God away and it causes us, first of all, to lose our greatest treasure, which is living in the paradise of God's very presence. We have become spiritually poor to interact with the first of those underlined words. But Jesus took on the poverty and the humility of the human condition, even to the point of death, so that we, through faith in him, might have the hope of inheriting Uh, a new creation in which we will once again dwell with our creator. Sin is always self-centered. It's prideful. It it is self-deceiving. Sin is addicting. It is enslaving in its power. And we would rightfully consider ourselves prisoners of sin by our own doing, not by someone else's. And we need a rescuer to bring us into freedom. Thirdly, sin acts like spiritual cataracts. It grows in its cloudiness to the point where we can no longer detect at all or even recognize ultimate spiritual reality on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, to give us spiritual eyesight to see truth. Fourthly, 
we would say the world has fallen and nothing is the way it's supposed to be. There are natural disasters, sickness, spiritual warfare, warfare between nations, broken relationships, all the result of sin. We struggle under oppression, our own doing and the the doing of others. And we need liberty through forgiveness and through renovation of our hearts and renovation of our world. If that perspective addresses Jesus' statement, Quoting Isaiah 61, let's back up a second and go to Psalm 68 again in the next slide. The Bible speaks of Jesus as the bridegroom of the church. Sin means that we have driven our spouse away. We've rejected him. We've cheated on him by making other things and other people more important than he is. It's as if we're widows making it through life on our own. Again, not because something happened to us, but because of our choice to sin. And that same sin makes us orphans. It's, uh, n- neither is it the, the case that we long to have a spiritual mother and a father, but none has been provided or the one we've had has been lost. No, we, we've pushed him away. We've chosen orphan status. Sin means that we tell God, I will do it. I will figure it out my way. And my plans and my wisdom and, and my engineering of life are what will make me happy. Not your plans, not your heart, not your will for me. We need to be adopted by the same God who is Heavenly Father, who has every right to turn away from us because we've rebelled against Him. And yet instead, by mercy and grace, extends us compassion and offers wholeness and healing for the broken. These terms describe who we are universally. Regardless of family status, regardless of material wealth or lack, regardless of legal status, a free person or behind bars, every one of us needs the rescue that God alone provides through His Son, Jesus For those of us who believe in this salvation, who have embraced it by faith, here's the question. How can we take God's fatherhood towards us as orphans? How can we take his compassion and offer of liberty towards us as prisoners and fail to extend the same to others? Jason and Shai are living out the gospel. Their decision to be foster parents is not simply this random act of generosity that they have undertaken. They are powerfully displaying the very heart of God towards the least. You know, um, you would think that pouring yourself into the life of a little child, still at the age of two, needing constant care and supervision, um, especially one born into a difficult environment, no father in the picture, taken away from her mother and her home, let alone the circumstances of brokenness that led to her removal, you would think that Jason and Shai would be empty of love. They would be crying out for others to pour love into them. And of course, they need support and they need prayer and they need logistical help. But we just heard something very different than emptiness. We heard Shai describe how God is using a desperately needy little girl who craves the security and belonging of a family who still needs 
two-year-old kind of attention and care who also regularly acts out in frustration and confusion. God is using all of that as an opportunity to generate more love, to take the love that already exists and to cause it to overflow in abundance, to take the love that's already in their hearts and to, and to, to purify it, to make it more like Jesus' perfect self-sacrificing love. God's using all of that to work redemption in the life of Jason and Shai. We, we heard her testify that the, the love of a wife towards her husband has grown. And that should not be a surprise to a, a Christian couple because she is delighting in seeing Jason love as Jesus loves. It, it's a little glimpse of the brokenness and fallenness and corruption of our world being pushed back, being resisted. God redeeming something dark by shining his light into it. Father loving like the Heavenly Father. A husband loving like Jesus loves with sacrifice and tenderness as well as strength. The love that Jason and Shai feared wouldn't be enough for two little girls in their household is proving to be far richer and more abundant than they ever would have dreamed. Shai said that that love doesn't even make sense, and she's right. How could it? From a human natural standpoint, how, how is it that the equation looks like give everything and gain as a result? Net gain. That's the upside-down gospel. Jesus gave everything. Uh, for our sakes, he became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. It's backwards from our standpoint, but it's the way God operates. And they know that this love comes from the Heavenly Father, enabling them to imitate Him as a father to the fatherless. We love because He first loved us. We have any capacity to love this way only if we rest in the fullness of God loving us this way. Uh, there was a, a piece of Jason and Shai's notes that they shared with me ahead of time that made me smile. Um, Shai described crying because she failed again. That's not what made me smile. I could, res I could uh, resonate with that. But she, she said she failed again in losing her newfound temper. I thought to myself, I'm not sure I could call any sin pattern in my life newfound because I've tried them all. I've exhibited them all. And especially not in my 30s would I find one for the first time. But here's a biblical perspective on newfound sin. There's nothing new about it. It's not like it didn't exist and this situation has caused it to kind of be generated and now it's here when it wasn't there in the to, be, to begin with. The, the newfound sin is, is just something that needed the right pressure, the right struggle, the right crucible of suffering, if we can call it that, and I think that's legitimate, to bring it out. And listen carefully. I'm saying I'm smiling at that, not because I'm thinking, ha ha, <laughs> someone else uh, has discovered more sin, not just me. I'm smiling because that's a, a piece of gospel grace gifted to Jason and Shireen. An opportunity to, to discover sin, yes. Because coming to the end of ourselves, realizing without a shadow of a doubt that 
self fails miserably, that self cannot accomplish what needs to be accomplished, the loving of this little girl with selfless, unconditional love, coming to the end of self is a glorious gift from God, that awareness at least. Because only then, so often only then, do we cast ourselves at the foot of the cross? Do we cling desperately to gospel grace and this identity that is sufficient, which is the identity of Jesus, which is the righteousness of Jesus, which is the perfection of Jesus? If finding sin or having it come out for the first time results in that kind of desperate clinging and a purer glimpse of God, then praise him for using struggle to make Shai and Jason more like his perfect son, Jesus. I wonder for how many of us is it too scary to even contemplate disrupting our comfortable, orderly, settled lives by pursuing uh, being a foster family or an adoptive family. But Jason and Shai's grace story is telling us, among other things, it just might be the means of seeing more clearly the face of God. And we've been talking about vision this all whole fall. I have this vision. I don't know if it's of God. It could be a daydream. It's a good one, though. I have this vision that GRC will become a place where the fatherless and the least and the widows and the aliens and the poor have a voice, have advocacy, have someone fighting for them. I would long to see GRC become a place where little ones who have no home are brought into loving, stable Christian homes where they can be safe and where they will hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Not just that these nice human beings saw fit to bring that child into a home here in Bergen County, but that the eternal God and creator and holy one and judge of all the earth sees fit to bring this child, to bring me into his own family as an adopted child through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray towards those end. Lord, perhaps not a crazy dream because it's your dream. It's your desire. It is what all of history is moving towards, Lord. Your complete and perfect plan to call sinners from all nations to trust in your son, Jesus, and to be called son and daughter to be called a co-heir with Christ, inheriting all of your perfect promises. Lord, give us strength, give us conviction to demonstrate that very heart to those in our own neighborhoods, to those without a father, without a mother, without a home. Show us, Lord, as a church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.